If you and I have the courage to tell our elected officials that we want our national policy based on what we know in our hearts is morally right, we cannot buy our security, our freedom from the threat of the bomb by committing an immorality so great as saying to a billion human beings now enslaved behind the Iron Curtain, give up your dreams of freedom, because to save our own skins, we're willing to make a deal with your slave masters. Alexander Hamilton said, a nation which can prefer disgrace to danger is prepared for a master and deserves one. Now let's set the record straight. There's no argument over the choice between peace and war, but there's only one guaranteed way you can have peace, and you can have it in the next second, surrender. Admittedly, there's a risk in any course we follow other than this, but every lesson of history tells us that the greater risk lies in appeasement. And this is the specter our well-meaning liberal friends refuse to face, that their policy of accommodation is appeasement. And it gives no choice between peace and war, only between fight or surrender. If we continue to accommodate, continue to back and retreat, eventually we have to face the final demand, the ultimatum. And what then? When Nikita Khrushchev has told his people, he knows what our answer will be. He has told them that we're retreating under the pressure of the Cold War, and someday, when the time comes to deliver the final ultimatum, our surrender will be voluntary, because by that time, we will have been weakened from within spiritually, morally, and economically. He believes this because from our side, he's heard voices pleading for peace at any price, or better rev than death, or as one commentator put it, he'd rather live on his knees than die on his feet. And therein lies the road to war, because those voices don't speak for the rest of us. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. podcast i'm your host john Hendricks. co-hosting for this episode uh is a frequent guest of the show nick betts as a army veteran uh nick what's going on brother not much man how you doing i'm good man i am good so for this episode um i had an interview with a a former uh, british paratrooper by the name of Stu pearson um and Stu, uh, he stepped on a landmine in 2006 in uh, southern Afghanistan. Um, and, and we had a full discussion about it, and we went into details. There was a movie made about it. Um, in the States, the title of the movie, you can find it on Netflix, is Kilo 2 Bravo. And um, it, it basically uh, goes in like chronological order from... What they were doing essentially was 
uh, protecting a, a dam. It was called the Kajaki Dam, and it was providing um, a lot of the power for uh, Helmand Province. So that was something that the Taliban placed a priority on trying to disrupt from uh, continuing. So they, they sent in uh, three power to uh, defend this dam. And uh, from what I understand, they, they were pretty successful at it. And basically what happened was uh, they had a sniper embedded with them and they noticed enemy activity, but they were too far away to, to take shots at. So what they decided to do was send a small team out uh, up into a, a high point so they can get a little closer and, and take some shots at these guys. And in route to where they had determined would be a good position to set up, uh, they ended up walking through a minefield. And uh, I think it was a total of six guys were injured and, and uh, one British paratrooper was killed. And and ultimately, they were stuck in this minefield for, I think, over four hours. And um, an American pararescue unit ended up coming in and uh, and getting those, getting them out. So... Uh, it's it's an interesting movie. Uh, it's a pretty compelling story, and uh, Stu is a pretty in- inspirational guy. So we'll play that for you guys a little bit later on. Uh, but for now, for right now, um, we have on uh, David Pavlik, and uh, David is a, a Army Special Forces Green Beret veteran who owns a business. And um, Dave, how's it going? Hey, John, how's it going? What's up, Nick? What's up, man? So, Dave, you uh, tell us a little bit of your background coming from probably enlistment. If you kind of went in with a with an eighteen X ray contract, or uh, if you spent some time in one of the shittier units before going off to uh, selection. Um, yeah, no, I, I enlisted uh, specifically to be uh, to BSF, uh, part of the eighteen X ray program, and uh, like I was telling John a little while ago. Um, a lot of folks are like, "Oh, you don't really come off as being the the typical X-ray, uh, the the uh, the X-ray that everyone thinks of, which is kind of like the immature, nineteen-year-old, really fit kid that uh, that's kind of given eighteen X-rays a bad name." And that was just kind of because I I did I did four years at a, a military college, um, and I just declined my commission and I enlisted because the eighteen X-ray program just kind of opened up post nine eleven, and. Uh, SF was all I wanted to do. Um, it was uh, something that kind of came up. I don't even know if I was going to do the military probably halfway through military school just because I kind of got, I don't know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do JAG or maybe I'll be a lawyer. I don't know. And uh, 9-11 happened and uh, the guys, the main guys on the ground that were affecting change were, were these bearded SF guys and some guys from from the agency special activity staff so those were uh, those are the guys I wanted to be so that kind of spurred me into into enlisting now what was your uh, what was your MOS when you were in obviously it was an 18 series but what was your your field specialty I was an 18 Charlie that's uh, engineer sergeant special forces engineer sergeant and uh, we like to joke we're, we're kind of like 18 bravos but we can do math <laughs> and and uh, so our main focus was um, demolitions. You know, we have a, a civil engineer capacity, which I'd say is utilized a lot less. Uh, certainly, <laughs> certainly during uh, combat rotations, I like to say I did more destruction than construction. 
but yeah, you don't but, seem like uh, the kind great- of guy to uh, jump in and want to build a bridge for you know a bunch of locals. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. You know, you're talking about Kajaki. Um, that same trip when they were actually building the Kajaki Dam, um, I had another mission, and that's one of the things we did was we had to kind of oversee this project building a bridge across the Hellman River. Um, it was this multi-million dollar project, and we got to do it. And this general flew in. And during his speech to a bunch of Afghans, which was getting translated in Dari and Pashto, he goes, just goes to show you, the SF guys, they don't just fly in and kill everybody. They can build bridges, too. And we were sitting there like, did this this guy is a three-star general? Did he just say that? Um, so, so, yeah, we build bridges, too, apparently. <laughs> so, Dave, with your 18 Charlie background and, and being mathematically inclined, did that help you quite a bit once you uh, went to cyber school? Um, I'm, I did. Um, I was lucky enough to go to sniper school um, after Todd Hodnett had kind of a really big influence on on special operations, uh, long range shooting. And so, you know, there is there is math involved. We were using Horus back then, and um, and ATRAG, and you know, the kind of the, the birth of uh, applied ballistics, and. Um, so a lot of that is, is math. A lot of that is cowboy math, as Todd likes to say. So um, some of it, actually, there were like quick win formulas and little things you could memorize. And then, I mean, so Nick, you've been, you were shooting a long time uh, with scouts. I mean, when I deployed, one of my first deployments to Afghan, and then my second deployment to Afghanistan, I carried a sniper rifle, and I wasn't even sniper qualified yet. I just kind of trained the teams and whatever. And what really helped me with some of the intangibles like calculating wind was just experience. I mean, math can, math can get you to your ballistic solution, but you know, things like, like wind blowing, uh, wind going two or three different directions across, you know, 1200 meters, 1500 meters across the Valley. That's stuff that I learned to just kind of start to feel. And, uh, yeah, that's and always I, something that I took a lot of, uh, joy in as well. When, you know, going through the different schools, whether it was uh, the Army Sniper School or when I was contracting, and kind of had to go through their program. I always took way more joy out of being spot on with calling wind as opposed to being spot on with pulling the trigger because uh, the wind is, is the more difficult variable. The gun's going to do the same shit every time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, spending, I spent, I kind of became obsessive um, in Afghanistan. I would just spend hours and hours and you know, as much as I do that the it's not it's not in the shooting it's in the waiting and you know forcing myself to learn patience was something that served me a lot a lot better uh, as a sniper than you know sitting there and really crunching the numbers and calculations and then and spotting wind using mirage that was really the way I learned how to spot wind so when I did a sniper course at Fort Bragg and there were trees and grass and taller grass and bushes I was like, this is awesome, man. I can see, I can see everything. Right. Uh, before I was just, you know, looking at, at weird distortions in the, in the air. So. Yeah. We've been super fortunate to have, and, and I say we as in shooters, uh, and, and I guess the industry as a whole to have Todd, uh, kind of come in and bring his knowledge and, and pretty much kind of revolutionize the way that, uh, classes are being ran and, you know, with his hands in on the special operations and even just the military community and kind of rewriting the book, we went from 
you know, the old school Carlos Hathcock days and, you know, kind of podunk M14s to, you know, the stuff that Todd is doing now with Horace. And it's drastically helping out all the shooters out there and, and you know, making dead people more dead. And Todd, Todd's a, Todd likes to push the envelope. And I really like that. And Todd doesn't care about a lot of the, um, I guess a lot of the old school mentality and some of those rules, uh, like twists, you know, Todd and I three or four years ago, were talking about twists and we were talking about going faster and, you know, progressive gain twists and things like that. And I was like, Hey man, what about, you know, a progressive get grant, you know, gain twist where it starts at one and seven, five, and then it goes to, you know, one and eight, one and nine over, you know, a shorter barrel. And he's like, well, how short? like 16 inches. I want to make this 308, you know, you know, planning out the AD 17 back then. And, uh, and he's like, ah, I mean, honestly, if, if you're going to start fast, you might as well stay fast, especially if it's going to be that short. And, you know, a year or two later, I spotted him again, a shot. And he was like, yeah, man, I, I've, I've gone that fast. I, I shot it and I was shooting, you know, a 12 and a half inch 308 barrel out to a mile. And that was stuff that, you know, five, 10 years ago, we'd say is completely impossible. Can't be done. It's just, there's no way in hell. Um, and it's the same thing. It's something I learned that was just, there's, there's conventional thinking and then there's, there's what really happens and math doesn't lie and the bullet doesn't lie. And, um, we're finding out more and more as one thing conflict kind of helps with is, is innovation. And he's kind of innovated how we look at physics. So I really, I really respect Todd and I, I admire him and, uh, I'm glad to call him my friend. But and that caveats really day. well into uh, kind of what you're doing now. So how many rotations did you do overseas? Uh, I deployed six times. Um, two of those were in Afghanistan. One of them was in Iraq. And then I did a couple trips to uh, South and Central America. So at what point in time during your career, or maybe it was post-career, did you kind of realize uh, you wanted to create a firearms manufacturing company? So... Um, it's kind of funny how that, how that goes. Again, I, I told you we were like bravos with, with math. Um, I was doing more like a bravo in a lot of ways. Cause I, um, I loved tinkering with, uh, with the guns. Um, I was a, I'd gone to the infantry mortar leaders corps. So I would, I would run mortars on the team. Um, I messed with all the sniper systems. I was one of the first guys messing around with the Mark 13 back then. Um, and then I was kind of this, I was always wanting to try out something new. What if we did free float rails? What if we didn't do this kind of rail? What if we did, you know, this charging handle? Hey, what about ambidextrous charging handles? What about this kind of selector switch? And so we would try those out on the team and, uh, and kind of tweak our weapons, augment our weapons a little bit there. And then it kind of turned into buddies of mine from the unit, buddies of mine from other units would bring me their personally owned guns and go, Hey man, what can we do to this? And we take it a, a couple steps further. And so, uh, towards the end of my SF career, uh, as a side project, we kind of, I had $2,000 in my pocket. We made a, uh, giant oven, like an eight foot by four foot oven to do Cerakote because Cerakote was something that I had gotten a chance to test out in combat uh, a couple times. And I thought it was great. And so we started Cerakoting guns and then we went from Cerakoting guns to, to changing out the rails, to changing out barrels, muzzle devices to the point where we came to everything, but the lower receiver, 
we basically someone would give us this gun like some rock river or something and we would replace everything but the lower receiver and recode it and do everything else and it, it worked better to the point where you went man why are we why are we polishing this thing why don't we just make our own and make everything we've we wanted it to be in an upper and a lower in a rail system and um and that's kind of what it morphed into we went and got an ffl and and started manufacturing and and kind of jumped jumped into it and then you know all the all the good things that that are part of this industry we experience and a, a lot of the bad things too uh you know there are all kinds of pitfalls to starting your own business and you know you know that as well as i do and um so it's it's been an interesting and, and bumpy road, but uh, I'm glad I started it. Yeah, and that's what's kind of so sad about uh, the industry, quote unquote, if, if you know that's that's what we want to call it, is uh, something that I've noticed from early on, pretty much my first introduction to it with americansnipers.org, is I just quickly realized how cutthroat it is and how quick everybody is to backstab everybody, and and you would think in a community that boasts about staying strong and supporting one another and supporting veteran businesses. Uh, that's honestly pretty much not the case. And you're hard pressed to find uh, mutual competing companies that are uh, pleasurable to each other and nice. So, and, and, you know, I, thankfully as of right now, I haven't seen any of that, but I know that you've kind of experienced that already in the past. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, you know, some of it comes from within and that's the stuff that really hurts. And then some of it is, a lot of it is external and it comes from, some of them come from massive companies. Some of them come from smaller companies. Some of them come from companies that you wouldn't even think are really competing with you, but they'll just, they'll kind of take advantage, especially if you're a, a newer company starting up. I mean, I, I remember my first shot show when we were, we were debuting the, the Reaper 33 edition of, of our rifle. And I was talking to the CEO of a, um, I'll just say a, a major company in the Northwest that sells parts and now sells rifles. And, um, they, you know, we were having a conversation. He goes, Oh, I'd love to have you guys, you know, sell your rifle with us. And, um, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And I'm like, well, I like, I like this kind of rail, you know, Hey, why are you using this kind of buttstock? At the time we were, uh, we were the first manufacturer to, to basically OEM mission first tactical uh, butt socks. The the first 100 um, minimalist butt socks in the country, they went to us. We had a, actually at the time a great relationship with MFT, and um, so after having this conversation with the CEO, you know, a month and a half, two months later, they come out with a rifle that was gray, a very similar color gray to ours, and had a similar kind of name, and it had MFT MFT furniture. And you know, it wasn't outright theft, but it was kind of like, man, he kind of he kind of picked a lot of the ideas out of my brain and I, I, I gave it away for free. Um, so yeah. now I'm, I'm just in, you know, and you're kind of getting into, you know, soft goods are, are really, I found a pretty cutthroat deal too, from talking to, you know, guys attack Taylor and a couple others. And, you know, it's the same thing. You really got to watch who you're talking to and, and what you give away and what you give away for free. And um, even my old partner had, had learned that he went to, Sophic and some guys were picking his brain about some of our ideas because we had ideas for we had ideas for drones we had ideas for all kinds of things and these guys were picking his brain and a sergeant major from um, a certain tier one unit came up to James and uh, knew him knew him from another deployment and said hey man you need to you need to stop talking 
you need to you need to not be giving this away for free. I don't talk to these guys. When I get out, I'm going to give them my rate, and my rate is going to be X amount of hundreds of dollars per hour, and that's what you should be doing right now. And uh, and it's true. Unfortunately, that's how it's got to be. There's no there's no handshake deals anymore. There's no, um, hey man, like this is kind of my idea. And it's it's super strange. And the if I had to name one company that was never has never been rude to us, always kind of welcomed us with open arms, um, even when we were absolutely nobody. It's not to say now we're sort of somebody, but first shot show we were really nobody, and that was Knight's Armament. Trey Knight and and his dad and his brothers have been super nice to us since we ever you know, we first met. Whereas other companies, some of them aren't in business anymore. Um, we're just absolutely rude to us. Like, uh, who are you guys? What's this? I've got, I've, I've got more designing uh, notions in my, uh, insert, insert a bad word here. And it was just, uh, you know, it was, it was so weird. You're like, man, this is Knight's Armament. This is a multi-million dollar company. They have no reason. They have no reason to even consider us on the, on this platform. And then you have other companies that, you know, maybe a little scrappier, the exact opposite. It was just yeah. it's kind of really eye-opening. So it seems like from social media and uh, just as far as production goes, you guys were really slaying it when you partnered with Nick Irving and, and kind of created the Reaper 33. Um, and from my perspective, at least, uh, it seems like you guys were a, a top tier weapons manufacturer because I mean, the market is so completely saturated with air 15s and air 10s of, of all kinds of sorts. And everybody thinks that they have the latest and greatest. Um, but you guys separated yourselves pretty well from that at arsenal democracy. And then after the Reaper 33 and, and kind of your guys' momentum, it seems like you guys fell off a little bit there and kind of went dark on social media and, uh, and kind of had some issues and I'd see in various forums and, and stuff like that, that people were bad mouthing, uh, arsenal democracy in your company because they weren't getting the orders that they had placed in. Yeah, no, um, you're absolutely right. Uh, as a company, we, we had tremendous momentum in the very beginning. Um, we, we sold out of like our first hundred rifles, the first hundred Reaper 33s, like it wasn't even a month. Um, which for a company that didn't exist two months prior to that was a big deal. And, um, we, uh, we, we had plans in place. We had done the, we had worked on the trigger. We had worked on the, the, remember the PDW stock that you saw and a couple other things. So we were just rocking and rolling. And, um, the problem was, I mean, there are several problems which I'll get into, but the problem was I wasn't, uh, I mean, I was, I was still a, a an employee of the United States army. So I really wasn't around as much as I could have been. You know, I could take leave and go to shot and I could stop by the shop after I got done, um, you know, when I wasn't in training or I wasn't uh, deploying. And, uh, and so James just kind of had his, kind of had his run of the place. And, you know, every time I would check in with James, he'd be like, yeah, everything's great, man. Everything's, everything's going good. And, um, you know, the numbers we were kind of locked out on. And, um, and you start, you start seeing stuff like that online. You start seeing, Hey, what's this guy talking about? What's this, uh, what's this thing on the forum? And you wouldn't really see anything on, on social media. At least I wouldn't see anything on social media and, you know, come to find out that 
James had made several deals with a couple other companies, some of them not even related to the firearms industry. And uh, we, it was just just skimming money off the top. Um, there's no real, really good way to say it. I mean, it, embezzlement is embezzlement. Um, and, you know, was just scooping money off the top, was blowing off customers, had left close to 100 customers in the wind when, you know, we finally figured it out. I had been going through a med board to get out of the army. When I finally did, um, I kind of had a chat with them. So I had a lot of, still had a lot of friends in SF and, um, you know, I, I still have my reputation and I spent my career building and, and I said, I'm just, I'm not going to be a part of this. I'm not going to have my name attached to this. And, uh, I walked and, uh, about a week later or two weeks later, uh, a couple members of the, the board overseeing the company reached out to me and said, Hey, what's, what's going on? We heard you left. And, um, I just kind of went, Hey, you know, business is, is not so cut and dry. Um, for me, it's black and white. There's a lot of gray area apparently with this. And, and I'm just, I'm, I'm taking a walk. I'm going to start my own company. And, uh, they were like, Ooh, let's have lunch. And we sat down and had lunch and, uh, and they said, how do we fix this? And, uh, I swear to God, I mean, it was over a beer. We, we, I pulled out a napkin and I, I made a list of, uh, of what we do to fix this. And it was like such a simple, if you have, you know, any kind of morality, it's a really simple list. You, know, you got, it's like doing your, your, uh, you know, stop the bleeding, you know, do that kind of thing. It was just, hey, we've got to sit here. We've got to, we've got to get rid of James. We've got to stop the bleeding. We've got to assess the damage and we've got to see who do we owe rifles to. We need to take care of them before we even think about selling our first rifle, you know, back with the, with the new design and coming out with anything else. And, uh, that's what we did. And it, you know, it's easier said than done. That was about, you know, it took about nine months to do, um, to get to where we are now, where we've taken care of those guys. And, um, at the same time, you know, come out with, tested off some of the old designs, come out with a couple new ones and, and progressed further from there to kind of, kind of eclipse that, that bad stuff. And to this day, I, I, if there are any other people that, that feel like they've been wrong by the company and, and haven't been taken care of, I mean, I, I encourage them to reach out to me. Um, I've tried to make myself one of the most accessible CEOs possible. I've, I've put my number out there. I do, you know, three different social media sites. So, um, at this point, I think I've, I've weeded out all the folks that, that have been, uh, that have been wronged by the old AD. So you and I had first met is more or less your passion behind the and manufacturing process and talking about your black side Glock, which I had my hands on for the first time at SHOT Show one of these, uh, a few years ago. Um, I noticed that you really focused on function before fashion, whereas it seems like everybody else nowadays is more worried about slide cuts and, and uh, you know, tie-coating the, the barrel to make it all gold and, and just kind of getting flashy with it. Uh, so where where does that kind of come from with your focus on, on, the, on the designs? Well, uh, you know, and, and you and I touched on that then, and it was, I think, a lot of, a lot of, gun makers are not necessarily gun users. And I, I don't mean that in a way that they, they don't go out to the range and shoot or maybe even compete, but um, in a professional capacity where your life really depends on it, you, you, don't, you don't care how shiny your barrel is. It's, it's more a matter of, does it work? Will it work when my hands are 
covered in hydraulic fluid? Will it work when my hands are bloody? Um, you know, will it work when it's dirty? Will it work when it's dusty? Will it work when it's been submerged in salt water? Uh, when I swam on the objective, that kind of thing. And, um, those are the things that, uh, that kind of keep me up at night and, and drive the, the function over form design. And it's, it's not to say that stuff doesn't look cool. I mean, some of this stuff yeah, does look really cool, but it's kind of a, you know, and you, I used this analogy with you before and that was, um, you know, there's, there's doing PT to take your shirt off in the club. And then there's doing, you know, doing PT to be the fittest assaulter or the fittest sniper you can be so that, you know, you can, you can bust through that door on a breach and you can, you know, pull your buddy in full kit off the objective if you need to. And, and when you train like that, um, you're still going to get fit and you're still going to have abs, you know, as a byproduct, as a side effect, you're going to be uh, really fit looking, but you're training for a completely different purpose. Um, and it's kind of that way with, with making guns. These guns do look cool, but it's really just a side effect of all the function that we try and put in there, not just the form. That's exactly something that I hit on in one of my blog posts was, was talking about that very same thing, how, uh, you know, everything is a byproduct. And if you focus on the necessary things in life to protect yourself, protect your family, and I mean, just protect the people, those byproducts are nine times out of 10, you know, you're going to be fit. Your, your marksmanship game is going to be on point. Your situation, your situational awareness is going to be there. Um, and so just all these good things come from practicing good habits. Uh, so your, your time overseas influenced your, uh, process of, of manufacture greatly. So tell us, uh, like some stories from, from that time that kind of directly correlated into, uh, things that you've kind of incorporated in the company now. Well, um, you know, one of the main, uh, things of the design people go in the upper receiver, uh, aside from it looking cool, uh, is that it, you know, it has a forward assist. I've, I've met a couple people in the industry that, um, swear up and down. You don't need a forward assist. Uh, it's completely unnecessary. It just added weight. It's not streamlined. You, you don't need it. Um, and, and I guess maybe in the competition scene, that's true. I use the Ford assist all the time. I actually, it's like a nervous tick. I use the Ford assist because I had a, an incident in uh, combat where I had main gun in the, in the turret of our GMV go down and we had guys bounding on us. And, uh, so I, I transitioned to, to my M4 and, um, you know, I banged a bunch of rounds through it. You know, we'd had, we had, gacked in so there's a ton of dust and everything else on it and um and i shot i shot a full 30 rounds keeping these guys down putting a couple guys down and i put a, a new magazine in we were using hk mags and uh they were pretty stiff and i loaded this mag in and i hit the bolt release and i i wanted to try and continue shooting one of the benefits of of being a lefty is that your right eye is always on the ejection port so you always kind of have this you have a constant situational awareness of when something goes wrong in the breach. And I could see that the round wasn't fully seated and it was, it was probably a dirty chamber, you know, on top of, you know, swollen brass on top of, you know, the, the mag was too stiff. And so I, this guy was bounding at me. He'd just come over this and he was, I don't know how many meters away, but you know, this guy is just coming uh, straight at us. And I, I remember with my, um, 
you know, the, the rifle grip in my hand. And with my other hand, I'm like furiously knife handing this forward assist. And I'm watching the, the round was incrementally going forward into the chamber until it finally went in the chamber. And it was like, click. And I, I could just feel when it seated. And then I, you know, I, I banged five, six rounds at him just to, just to put him down. And I mean, it was one of those that was way too close a call. And so, you know, and you use the forward assist and everything else. You use the forward assist when you're, um, you're loading a magazine as quietly as possible um, in, the, in the ORP. You use it for, yeah. you know, after a jump. If your jumping weapon's exposed, you know, you, you bang it. You got to go ahead and double check. Um, so anything. Any, you get jostled anything happens, you go, Oh man, let me just hit that forward assist real quick. Um, and it's, it's something where it's always going to be a part of what I do when I come out with the 308, it's going to have, it's going to have a forward assist. Um, and then accuracy, you know, I, I'm, I'm such a stickler for accuracy just cause I'm kind of a, I think I'm kind of a perfectionist too. And, and you're a long range shooter. So accuracy is real life. Uh, and, you know, it's one of those things where um, people are like, oh, I just need one minute of man. That's all I need. And uh, I, I keep trying to tell people that haven't really been in a situation where you need to shoot somebody that uh, when, you're, when it's for real and, and you're nervous and the adrenaline's flowing and whatever else, you'll have plenty of factors to help you miss. You'll have a ton of factors to help you miss. There won't be, don't worry about it. There's all kinds of things that'll take care of it. Your heartbeat will be going crazy. Uh, your gun will be dirty. You'll be using bad ammo. There'll be all kinds of stuff. You don't need how accurate the rifle is to to add to that. So uh, yep. if I can make a gun that's if I can make a gun that's point one MOA, I'll make it uh, because I know that real adrenaline and a real combat situation will just tack an MOA onto that. And uh, yeah, you know it's funny you were talking about that and and like that guy bounding at you. Uh, you and I were talking not too long ago about these reoccurring dreams or nightmares or however you want to see it. I, I don't want to use the word nightmare uh, so it doesn't correlate with PTSD, but I think it's just like a, a shooter's thing. Um, you know, in our sleep, we'll have a guy, you know, coming at us or, or you know, we'll, we'll get up on him. And, uh, you know, you and I, like we're trying to squeeze that trigger and we just can't squeeze the trigger. And we're using two fingers on there and still trying to like maintain sight picture, sight alignment, and you just can't squeeze the trigger, dude. And that's like, Oh, I wake up in like a dead sweat whenever whenever that happens to me. Yeah, it's crazy. I'll, I'll I, I, yeah, we, it's funny we have that exact same dream. But uh, but yeah, I get the drop on this guy. I mean, it is a it is a good righteous kill, and I've got the, <laughs> I absolutely have the drop on him, and he's starting to turn around, and that's when I'm squeezing the trigger, and that's when I go into panic mode because the trigger won't go back, and, and like you said, you go to two fingers, and uh, and you just you. It's, there's nothing more frustrating than that because it's not you. It's not like you're hesitating. It's not like you're frozen. It's your, your, your gun. This, this thing that's supposed to help you do what you got to do uh, is, what's, is what's holding you back. And, and like I said, I, I, wake up, I wake up in a cold sweat too, and then I immediately go find a gun somewhere, and I start like polishing the trigger and, uh, <laughs> and see what I could do to, to, to make it work better. And, um, you know, I, 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 had a, I had an incident uh, early in my career where I, I used a I use a pistol for real too. And, and that's why I feel the way I do about, um, about that pistol and about the black side, because they're not just, they're not just a, a secondary weapon. They, they could very, if, if your other weapon goes down, then it's your primary. If it's a situation where you don't have room for that weapon, it's your primary. If you're wearing nods and your lasers down and, but you have a, a laser or a red dot on your pistol, it's your primary. And, uh, 
I've seen so many other arguments. It's the same kind of minute of minute of man argument, folks, that say stuff like, uh, "Well, if you got to use your pistol. I mean, you're in trouble." I'm like, well, what yeah. if you're in trouble, man? Uh, I've been in trouble a couple times in combat, you know. And you you put ten, twelve guys in a situation where they might go up against two, three hundred people, uh, you, you know, alone in a valley. That's trouble. You're by nature, your MOS is trouble. Yep. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't accept that. It's kind of like, you know, the, the forward assist argument. Well, if it wasn't meant to go in, I guess it just wasn't meant to go in. It's like, uh, no, it's going in. That, if that's my last <laughs> round, it's going in. If I got to get a rock and shotgun this thing, I'm going to do that. Um, and, and it's, it's the same thing. It's the same thing with a pistol. When I, when I used it, it was my primary. And, um, you know, it took, it took five shots. I talk about combat marksmanship. You know, I, I was one of the, one of the better shots on the team. And, you know, I went from making these really tight little groups and shooting comps and shooting for beer overseas and whatever, uh, to shooting this guy as best as I could in the trunk. And, you know, it was like neck, collarbone, you know, upper chest, lung, and this guy just didn't stop. And it kind of blew my mind because I, I took two shots. I did like, we always train for, um, for control pairs. And it was something that was kind of drilled into us in the mid two thousands. And, uh, I, I actually drilled this guy twice and then came back to position three. It's a story I tell. I, I came back to position three and I, I instantly knew I did the wrong thing in my mind. I was like, what are you doing? Like he, that guy's not down. And in slow motion, um, this might have influenced my nightmare, but in slow motion, I am pushing back out. I felt like I was pushing with, you know, all my force to push that gun back out to re-index and put three, four rounds, this guy. And it wasn't until I hit him uh, right in the middle of the bridge of the nose that the guy actually shut down. Um, he was that determined um, to come to come at us. And, you know, you know it, it taught us, it taught all of the people in us and then as one, you're your, whether it's your primary, your secondary, your tertiary, uh, whatever comes after that, they're all your primary if, if that's what you have at that time. And they're do all drill. You know, you, you shoot until a threat is gone. And um, we kind of changed the way we, we thought about a lot of things, not just guns, the way we trained and, and the way we fought after, after little incidents like that. Good shit, man. Good shit. Hey, so Dave, um, kind of rewinding a little bit. You you went through the eighteen X ray program, so and and you said you were you kind of finalized your decision to join the army uh, after nine eleven. So then that would that mean that you were one of the first you were one of the first waves of, of guys to go through the eighteen X ray program? Was no, I was not one of the first waves. So you know, I think the X ray program they brought back the SF program. Maybe you know, I think it was called the well. SF baby program or baby SF program in the eighties, uh, they shut it down. And then after nine 11, I want to say it was sometime in mid to early 2002 is when they started the 18 X-ray program up again. And, uh, I was at the Citadel, uh, during nine 11 at the time. And, uh, you and I talked about how I'm, I'm originally from New York and, uh, I still had family in New York, um, at the time. And, um, you know, for two or three days, uh, there were no, there was no phone contact. I mean, if you were in yeah. town at the time, you know, like cells were down, plan lines were down, everything was down. Yeah. So for two or three days, I actually thought my mom was dead on nine 11. And, um, it was such a helpless 
feeling, you know, just, it, it totally, it changed my body chemistry. Um, and I was like, I, I, I know I have to join. I know I have to do something. I have to do, I have to do this SF. And, um, you know, it turns out she was alive. Thank God. And, um, you know, but it wasn't like, Oh, okay, well, never mind then. Um, it was something, there's a feeling that just, uh, that just wouldn't go away. This nagging feeling that you can't just ignore stuff on the, on the global stage anymore because it, it will find you. And, um, so I finished out school. That was one thing she was like, if I was dead, that's one thing I'm alive. You're going to finish college. So I finished, uh, I finished, uh, the Citadel. I graduated from there and, um, I didn't take a commission and I instead enlisted, I enlisted, uh, it was right around by the time I was able to get through everything with all the, the maps and the delayed entry program or whatever else, it was almost the time we were, we were hitting Iraq. It was like April or maybe March uh, uh, of 2003. And that's, that's when I started that uh, program, which was a pretty long pipeline. Yeah, I, I know that the uh, SF pipeline is, is some of the longest, if not the longest, in the entire military. And I mean, I think it, I think it breeds, I think it breeds maturity. Um, you know, it's not a, it's not a one and done kind of thing, and it kind of weeds out. There's plenty of opportunities to uh, wash yourself out. To whether you go from this phase or that phase, you know, you can screw up on your off time and be done. There was kind of a zero tolerance thing there, or you can decide it's not for you, or you can get injured. Uh, there's a ton of. It was such a meat grinder and such a long road that it was a real gut check, especially for medics. Um, Eighteen is, you know, go ahead and tack a year onto that. It's funny and, you said uh, that too, because uh, last time I was on rotation back from Baghdad when I was contracting, uh, one of my best friends. We were in the, in the army together, we're in first ID over in Germany. And then we're at Fort Carson together in uh, fourth ID. And as soon as I got out, he went to selection and he ended up getting picked up and uh, tested to go be a Delta or a medic. And so I came back a few months ago on my, on my rotation and he hit me up and uh, he's like, Hey, what are you doing? I was like, oh, I just got back to San Diego. He's like, well, I'm in Yuma right now in halo school. Like, can you and my boys come down? I'm like, yeah, dude, you can come stay with me. So it was a good time having him and like seven of those halo classmates out, but dude, I'm telling you what, dude, we, we could have ran downtown having a bunch of, uh, ODA dudes and former battalion guys knocking out halo school. But, uh, we were talking that night and, and I'm like, are you, are you done yet? Like, are you finally like on a team? And he's like, I am now. And that was three years ago that, that I got wow. out at the same time he went to selection. So I was like, Jesus dude, like you finally got your braid and you finally got assigned into a, a team. Yeah. That's like that was kind of a deciding factor um, for not really wanting to go in SF as an officer too. Um, you know, people were like, "Why don't, why don't you be an SF officer?" To include a lot of officers. I mean, I, I had a lot of officers that that knew me at the Citadel who uh, been an officer, and it just kind of didn't add up because I, you know, what did I want to do? I mean, sure, you know, being a leader doesn't necessarily mean you're an officer. A lot of a lot of a lot of times, it doesn't mean that at all. It means the opposite, but. Um, you know, you look at officers in the officer pipeline, you're going to spend however long in a line unit, you know, whether you're a fire maneuver guy or whatever else. And then, you know, you're going to spend probably two years in the Q course and then officer team time as a detachment commander. So, you know, being on the ground with your guys is maybe, you know, maybe 48 months. 
maybe a little bit longer if you're if you're lucky or it's in between rotations or something so you're talking about seven years between fine and then doing the course and then you're going to spend two years on a team that just didn't add up to me so i was like no i want to do this pipeline where i go directly in sf you know I mean, i'm going to suck in the course and everything else but then i you know i went on to spend you know almost 10 years on a team and uh and that just that was exactly what i wanted to do i wanted to be the guy on the team even a senior guy on the team but i wanted to be on a team as long as i possibly could yeah so if you're going to spend three years in the Q course, you want to try to hang on to your, you want to try to hang on to being a team guy for as long as you possibly can. So if I was a Delta, if, and I, can I tell you a secret? I actually, uh, I was going to be an 18 Delta. Um, I attested, I attested for all the, you know, all the, my, my scores were good and everything else. And I remember seeing on my packet, you know, when you, when you finish election and you, at least back then we went to this loading dock where they go and, and receive you and they take all your all your files and everything else. I saw that it said 18 Delta and I kind of, I, I yanked that out of my, out of my folder. And, uh, and the lady was like, what are you supposed to be? And I said, I'm, I'm an 18 Charlie, ma'am. And I, I knew some of the guys in the 18 Charlie committee cause I had some downtime at one point and I got detailed to work out of the 18 Charlie range. I had helped them build a couple culverts and, and the actual bleachers where I was an 18 Charlie later on as a student. And so they recognized me and they were like, hey, Dave, what's up? Yeah, this guy's a Charlie all the way. And the lady was like, okay, 18 Charlie. And stamped it. And I was like, yes, I have, I have controlled my own destiny. Um, and it's funny because I actually kind of did the same thing with choosing seventh group because I think I was slotted to maybe go to first group or first or fifth group, I want to say. And I wanted to go to, I wanted to, go to seventh. And I, had already, I already knew how to speak Spanish uh, from before. So I, I think I... I can't remember when I took the actual DLPT, but I managed to take a DLPT and score like a two plus without ever having going to language school. So I, not only did I knock off language school, but I also, it was like, boom, Spanish. So I'm in one oh, place nice. to go, seventh group. So I, uh, I kind of scored big there too. So I kind of, kind of steered my own career, uh, at least at the beginning by doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, that, that's interesting. So, uh, for the audience who, who's not familiar, uh, each special forces group is assigned to a, a geographical location uh, where they would specialize in, in, the, in the language and the customs. Is that is that how it works? Yeah, I mean, uh, you've got um, you know, you've got seventh group, which is where I was at. Where seventh group actually has one of the largest uh, areas of responsibility. It's like it's over thirty two countries between South and Central America and the Caribbean. Um, you know, you've got you've got first group that, that focuses primarily on Asia. Um, you know, 10th and third have their AORs, you know, fifth being the Middle East. But, you know, since the advent of the, of the GWAT, basically everyone's had, it's like, yeah, you've got that. And then you've also got Afghanistan and Iraq. So everyone was like, everyone's, everyone's focused on the Middle East. So, you know, we had this kind of thing where, you know, peacetime SF, there's really such a thing. Those guys would do their J sets and and do their trips to you know South America or or to the Philippines or wherever the AOR was, and then you know rotate off, do training, and then rotate back on again. But uh, you know since 9/11, SF groups were you still have that mission. You're still doing that for the theater commander, and then it, rather than rotate rotate off and take a break, you you kind of would switch over to going to Afghanistan or going to Iraq. And then you come back and then maybe do some training. And I think that's kind of contributed 
you know, that kind of nonstop schedules kind of contributed to, um, you know, a lot of guys getting burned out because um, that's not really how it was designed to be, at least not for this long. You know, this has been a super long conflict, especially, especially Afghanistan. Yeah, I mean, pretty much um, on, on a previous episode, I've had um, uh, a guy that you're friends with, uh, Michael Rodriguez, who's a former 18 Delta. Yep. And one of the things we were talking about was the, the effects that uh, some of the, the uh, battlefield medics were having on uh, medicine on the civilian side of the house in the States or, or you know, even abroad in the UK. And, um, you know, one thing he did say was that, you know, never in our history have our warfighters been this experienced because of the length of the of the conflict. Um, so, you know, guys are having so many rotations. And then, you know, for the younger guys who are, who are just getting in or, or getting ready to go through, their instructors are all guys with combat experience, you know. So I think it, in, in the way of, you know, it enriches the... Uh, the current generation and the next generation and for guys going forward, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, you said it, it's an unprecedented time. And if there's anything, I mean, war aside from industry breeds incredible innovation. And, you know, you look at world war two, you know, the space program is around because of some of the rocket tech, you know, that, that both sides were coming up with. Um, now if you and I, you know, God forbid, got shot on the street and went to the hospital, they'd be able to save us 10 times more likely we'd make it because of the, the innovations. And so all everything we've learned from traumatic medicine in the last 15 plus years. And, you know, it's, it's, there's innovations in everything in, in weapons technology. You know, Nick and I talked about that in, in optics, in ammunition, in body armor, you know, making things lighter. And then, you know, I, Mike and I have touched on that stuff too. And that's all the medical tech. You look at cat tourniquets, you know, before the tourniquet, I remember, you know, even early on in, in basic training, they were like, okay, the tourniquets are last resort and you can only have it on for like four hours and you better write the time on his forehead or else they're four hours and one minute, they're going to cut that limb off. And you only do it if it's a last resort. It was like this crazy, you know, you're like, oh my God, a tourniquet. I don't want a tourniquet, you know, but after you start training with, you know, with guys who've really been in combat, um, by, by Oh five, Oh six, we're like, Oh no, no, you get, you get hit in the arm. You're putting a tourniquet on. You get hit, you get hit in your thigh. We're putting a tourniquet on. You get hit in your, in your toe. We're putting the tourniquet on because they figured out how many people were, were dying from, from bleeding out from what they perceived to be a, you know, just a, a small extremity wound that, they just never shut off. And, um, and we know that stuff now and they've developed better tourniquets. They've got that, uh, they've got those, uh, those shorts, those pressure shorts. I mean, they just so many, so many different, uh, new inventions and, and new techniques. I mean, crikes doing crikes. I had to do live crikes on people in combat. I, unfortunately I, I had been present for a couple suicide bombings and, you know, I, all the things that I learned how to do that later on I was in Sephardic and, um, we were doing live training. We'd gone in, done a hit and the you know, instructors were like, okay, now we got, you know, assaulters that are shot. So, okay, you're shot. This guy's shot. This guy's hurt. All right, you come here. You're the assault force sergeant major. 
come here and start start analyzing this guy. I'm like, okay, all right, man. And got there, and he goes, all right. He's got a he's got a wound in his uh, upper abdomen. Um, you know, he's got this. So I start going through the whole thing. I'm like, all right, okay. I'm going to look for an exit wound. All right, no exit wound. Okay, I'm, uh, you know, this guy is conscious. He's you know in the abpu scale, and we just went through this, and we went back and forth with this guy who was a medic for like ten minutes. And it finally got to the point where he stumped me. I mean, he just absolutely stumped me. So like, he asked some crazy thing, and I went, "I, I really don't know, man. I'm, I'm, I'm out. I'm fresh out." And he goes, well, "What kind of medic are you?" <laughs> and I was like, "I'm not a medic. I'm an 18 Charlie." And it went, "Oh, oh, oh, oh dude." I, he goes, "Dude, I thought you were a, I thought you were an 18 Charlie or an 18 Delta man. That's, well, that's awesome, man. Yeah, you, you really had me going for a while. So I mean, to fool another 18 Delta into thinking that you're a Delta for you know 10 plus minutes because you, you just have that much hands-on training and experience in the medical field, uh, you know, that says something because, you know, before it was like, you were a badass if you knew how to give an IV. And now we've got guys who are, are essentially line guys in SF who are combo guys or weapons guys who are doing crikes in the dark, who are, you know, doing cut downs, doing everything else that, you know, that was a, that was a big deal for, for combat lifesavers 20 years ago. And that's what's so great about the SF community is you guys uh, cross-train so frequently together. And I think it's just all small communities because, you know, we even kind of had it in recon too where we would get our FSOs in there and teach us how to call fire. And we would go over to the JTAC house and have those guys teach us how to talk to fixed wings. And and it's all about just gaining as much knowledge as possible and kind of building out that, that uh, I don't know, book that we can draw from overseas in order to figure out how best to take it, uh, you know, handle a situation because maybe calling in artillery is probably not the best thing for collateral damage. So what would you do then? Well, you know, then you can call in fixed wings or, uh, aircraft or, you know, depending on the distance, even snipers and just trying to take everything from all avenues. And I think that, I hope that that's something that, that the military is going to continue to do is enforce the cross training between everybody. But right now, or at least when I was in, it seemed like it was only in the smaller units. Yeah, and I don't know what that is. I don't know if that's just because. You know, I think it's laziness. No, it's, I mean, it's also you know everything gets everything gets lost when it gets when it gets bigger and bigger. Yeah. Um, because it goes that way for companies too. But if you're if you're you know ten guys, if you're twenty guys, thirty guys, it's it's a lot easier to to get together in a round table and talk about it instead of layers and layers and layers of bureaucracy to have a committee to think about what we could possibly train on in the future. Oh, let me send a memo about that. I think that's where you just, you, you have more and more layers to get through to get to that decision point, to even decide what kind of extra training you need. So you just killed all this time getting there. It's like, it goes back to like, you know, look at mission planning. Um, we had a, a more inexperienced guy at one point and he was like, all right, so we're going to plan for a mission. And, um, Okay, so we'll break break up into three groups. You know the old like MDMP. You know, get three courses of action. Mm-hmm. You you have you have by air. You have by sea. And um, most we likely, were like, most dangerous, most probable. Yeah. So we went through you know three hours of this little exercise to basically guess what all three groups came up with something that was about ninety seven percent the same, and we could have just got around a a, a sand table and come up with the same plan in 30 minutes mm-hmm. and, and just cut out a lot of the BS and sit there and just go, you know, okay, no, we've got, we've got insertion, we've got infiltration, we've got, uh, actions on the objective. 
we've got exfil, and then we've got our debrief. Let's just focus on that. And it, you know, as later on when I got to the SIF, it, it became even more compressed. And the main thing you focused on were all your contingencies. If you had your contingencies covered, then you know the actual actions on the objective were. And it was it was demonstrated to us by a by the commander out there. He's like, look, uh, you guys got five minutes to plan for this mission. You know, you've got your GRGs, you've got whatever else, but you know, it's a house. It's got four walls. Um, there's maybe a couch in there. There's uh, you know, some bad guys. You know, if if you if you hit this door and it doesn't open, what are you going to do? I go, oh well, our SOP says to do this. He goes, okay, great. What are you going to do if this happens? Yeah, we do this. So everyone knew the plan and everyone knew how to CQB at this point. So we were just like, all right, what's the real thing we need to spend this five minutes on? Um, how about like where the medevac is going to land if somebody gets shot or, you know, if the hostage is messed up or what are we going to do if there's a vehicle goes down? That was the stuff that we focused on. And, and it was that rapid planning cycle. If you just cut out some of that bureaucracy and that BS, that's not to say don't plan, you know, don't run it by the seat of your pants and, and, um, and do something like that, or you're gonna you know, you're gonna wind up you're gonna wind up like uh, like uh, that SDV team that there was a movie about recently. But uh, if you if you know your your TTPs and you you know what you're doing and you you plan on the stuff that could go wrong, then the stuff that could go right you're already trained for. Yeah. Hey, hey Nick. So just a question on uh, to go back to some of the tourniquet use. Um, you know, obviously in a, a 12 man, uh, special forces team that, you know, they cross train and stuff like that. But, um, so you were, you were in the infantry in Iraq and Afghanistan. Did you like you specifically, did you carry around a tourniquet or, or did you guys just kind of leave that up to the medics or the guys who were uh, a little higher qualified in medicine? Oh, absolutely not, dude. Every single dude had a tourniquet on them. And even then they had, they had one in their IFAC. Um, and then they would have one cause depending on the, on the types of camel that we were, we had cry at the end. Uh, you'd wear the cat in your little like thigh pocket and you would take it cause it has like a red, like pull band on the, on the end of it. And you'd fold that over on the outside of the pocket. So that way, if you were messed up, uh, medic or whoever could immediately see where your, your tourniquet was. And it was, it was mandatory that you kept in the same pocket for every single person. Um, and even then, you know, I still had some, so I had, uh, one of my right calf, like down low. And then I had one that was rubber band to my, my chest rig. And then I had one of my IFAC. So I had three on me at all times. And that was first and foremost, like priority, like every single person, even down to like the, the retard, you know, like the guy that you wouldn't even trust with the pencil. Like even <laughs> that guy was pretty good at putting on a, a tourniquet. We made damn sure of that because that's, that's nothing to play around about. Right. Right. And, and I know, um, Dave, it's interesting because, you know, I've had a bunch of SF guys on previously and, and uh, you know, guys who were in the SIF and, and different special forces groups. And one, one thing that was brought up was we kind of talked about the uh, bureaucracy uh, that led to some of the uh, the failure of the response to uh, Benghazi. And, um, you know, it, it's it's something that the, uh, the operators of this kind of particular time, like, you know, the last four or five years are, are dealing with more than, than, than guys who were, uh, deploying during the, the early to mid two thousands. Um, you know, kind of with the change of the rules of engagement and, um, and really just the, the, the added layers of bureaucracy and, uh, 
an example was given about how they were they wanted to run like a basic uh, route reconnaissance, and um, it took like I, f- I forget the exact time. I don't want to throw a number a number out there, but it, it was something that was really ridiculous amount of time for them to get a response for something so basic. And, and it, I, th- I think it was something like a week or, or even a little longer than that. And I know that that's something that frustrates some of the guys who are who are out uh, deployed now, you know? Yeah, and, you know, you brought up Benghazi, and um, I, I knew guys in the SIF who uh, who were there. That, that you know, the, they're based out of Europe, and that SIF unit was actually kitted up doing a full mission profile. And, you know, as a SIF, we're always travel with a package, and that package has... Um, certain loadouts and certain things for, you know, a, a contingency just like that. And those guys were on standby. They could have been wheels up and wheels back down in probably three hours, maybe four. And, um, you know, if you've never seen what an entire SIF company can do, I mean, if you were to drop a, a fully armed SIF company into that situation, I mean, it would be, it would be a much different movie. And, um, it's it, it's super frustrating, and I, you know, the 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 con op joke was kind of something that uh, is is passed around in SF and in uh, some of Marsoc and some of the seals, and it's um, a con op is is what you have to submit in order to do a, a an operation. It's your it's your concept of the operation, and you know we went from the early days of putting out what we used to call a five Ws, and that was a Windows text document. I mean, it was like you could have sent it. You could have sent it with an embedder. It was so such little data, and it was just a five Ws of where you're going to go, what you're going to do, with who, and um, you know, it was that easy. It would they would see that five Ws and go yes or no. It was almost always yes, and you went ahead and did it. And then a con op started becoming one page, and you had to throw the illustrations with it, and, you know, do your PowerPoint, and then. Um, it started growing into, okay, well, this is like, we're involving more assets and you want air and you want to do this. That's a level two con op or a level three or level four or level one. And, um, they grow larger and larger to the point where con ops were starting to be 12, 14 pages that you'd have to do submit. And that's a tremendous amount of work for not just for the team to plan and prep for, but you know, for the team leader and team sergeant and warrant to sit there and wrap this whole thing up and submit it and sit there and wait. And what kind of timeline did you have to actually get that approved? And, um, you know, I start, I start experiencing that. Uh, we experienced that in, you know, some of my later uh, OEF trips and, and especially in Iraq because we were, um, we were a SIF there doing stuff with, um, with a, a tier one organization. And, you know, even they had their frustrations between, cause especially because we went through the, the transition between Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation New Dawn. And, uh, you know, it's, it's gotta be frustrating. I'm out now. I've been out for a little over a year and, um, it's gotta be frustrating for the new guys. I, my only advice I could give is use the system that the bureaucrats have created to slow you down to just slow them down. Um, an example is, uh, I, uh, myself and another teammate of mine, uh, we'll just, we'll call him hoot. Wanted to go do a, a kind of sniper three-day recce thing. And uh, really, we just wanted to set up on this one area overlooking this pass to look for guys putting in IEDs. And um, we knew it was going to take forever to get this operation blessed off. And it was probably going to be something where, well, gun trucks had to be within this amount of space. And we didn't want it to be all that. We just wanted to come in with 
ATVs under nods using waddies, um, passive IR only and come in, stash the stash them, climb this mountain, get on there, set up guns and then do what we got to do for three days. And we knew that it was either going to be take so long to approve or outright get shut down that I just, I just played on, on the rules. And so I submitted a five W's for Stano. And I remember I wrote it up as Stano. And I, I knew the AST, he was kind of the liaison, the LNO for, uh, for our company and our soda. And I knew he was going to report it. So, you know, at the cub, the commander's update brief, I knew they were going to go, okay, ODA, uh, 732 is going to conduct uh, Stano in this area, you know, um, just a kind of a low profile operation. And I knew that it's the nature of higher ranking officers and bureaucrats and, and even SF guys to never act like you don't know something. And Stano is Nick, you, you're a, you are a scouts guy and probably, you know, mess with Lurs guys. You know, that Stano stands for surveillance and target acquisition, uh, night operations. And so I knew that most of those guys didn't know that unless they happened to be in like a Lurs unit or something like that. And, uh, so I could just imagine the, the commander being like, Oh, Stano. Yeah. Stano. <laughs> awesome. It's been a, yeah, we should get more guys doing some of that Stano. That's good. That's, uh, you should really, and, yeah, I just, I was sure that's what happened. And, and so we were able to go and do these operate. We did them, you know, we probably did three or four before they caught on. And, um, and we're all these dead dudes in the field. <laughs> who are all these guys just getting, just getting smoked, just getting fed to the crows while they're trying to put in IEDs. And, uh, <laughs> And it was just, you know, it was, I mean, it was still stuff that we would go, you know, if you've got troops in contact, you're still calling troops in contact. It, you know, it is what it is. Um, and eventually, you know, they connected the dots. You, know, you do a couple of those and it's just, you know, what are you going to do? But then you just change your tactics again. You got to be unconventional in dealing with, with, you know, some of your own command. And, you know, it's not breaking the rules. Nobody did. We didn't break any rules. We submitted a five W's. It was approved. And we went ahead and we did it. Um, I even used, you know, U.S. Army doctrine and and uh, and acronyms. So it's just you. I would have to say, do that and outsmart. You got to outsmart the bad guys now, and you've got to outsmart some of your own commanders. Yeah. But uh, but it, it it works, and and that's what that's what SF guys and unconventional guys do. You you got to use your brain. That's your three pound weapon. It won't get any lighter, but uh, but it's probably your best weapon um, in, in today's, in today's kind of ambiguous, a- ambiguous, uh, battlefield where guys are, if you're faced with getting smoked or, you know, maybe doing the wrong thing, but ending your career, you're kind of got to out, you got to outthink your way out of something like that. There's no out shooting your way out of it. I wish it was easier, but it's not. Right. Right. Um, okay. So, so for anyone who's listening for the audience, if they wanted to keep up with you, um, where can they go to follow you on social media or if they wanted to check out some of your rifles and that kind of thing, where can they go for that? Um, well, they can, uh, our website is arsenaldemocracy.us and, um, yeah, pretty simple interface and they can just go on the arms room and it shows the different, uh, different guns. And then it's, it's got a link, a live gallery to our Instagram feed, which is, uh, same name, arsenal underscore democracy. And uh, our Facebook page, same name, Arsenal Democracy. And uh, yeah, I mean, we, you know, on our Instagram, there's uh, you know, there's several pictures of of our guns, some of our different projects, some of our R and D projects that we're working on, 
and then uh, I mean a couple pictures, flashback pictures we do every now and then of uh, times when I was on a team and uh, some of the other guys who work with me were on teams and uh, you know been in Afghanistan and Iraq and kind of throw that in the mix too. Awesome, awesome. So uh, on the podcast notes on my website, like. You know, that's where people can go to click the links if they don't go directly to iTunes or SoundCloud. Um, I'll list all those links uh, and, and have people uh, jump over to your site. Awesome, man. I appreciate it. No worries, man. I just want to thank you for coming on. And, um, you know, I, I know the audience is going to appreciate to hear from a guy like yourself. And, um, you know, just again, uh, thank you for everything you've done. Hey, thank you, John. And, and thanks, Nick. And, uh, yeah, hopefully I can hop on again. It's been fun. Yeah, for sure, man. Yeah, man. We'll catch up at a shot. All right, bro. That's a deal. So now, right now, we're going to listen to the interview that John had with Stu Pearson and uh, kind of get his story and his experiences over in Afghanistan and how, how he made it out of there. Uh, hopefully, you guys can understand him since he uh, has pretty much the thickest accent that me and John have ever heard since Braveheart. <laughs> hey, what's going on, guys? Uh, for this episode, my guest is Stu Pearson. And Stu was a, a paratrooper in the British Army with three para and Stu served for 20 years. Uh, he was wounded in Afghanistan and, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that incident. And, uh, so Stu, how's it going? About John, you're late. Um, yeah. Yourself. Yeah, I'm good, man. Uh, I just want to thank you for coming on. I know it's kind of late over there. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to say. Yeah. So Stu, let's, um, you know, so a, a lot of, Americans, you know, there's a there's a huge community of uh, people who support veterans in America, you know, supporting American veterans and as well as British uh, veterans. Um, but I, I don't think people are very familiar with, you know, units like the Paras and, uh, you know, some of the more specialized infantry units. Uh, so the Paras are, are basically an elite light infantry unit. Yeah, more or less, basically the same as the um, the second Dearborn in America. Okay, right. So, uh, you know, in, in the uh, this global war on terror, you know, between Iraq and Afghanistan, the Paras were deployed uh, to both war zones, right? That's correct. Yeah, we were first into first into Iraq um, with the British. Well, the first of the British troops into Iraq, and um, the first of the British troops into Helmand in Afghanistan in 2006. <clears throat> okay, and up in uh, in Helmand, Helmand province, Afghanistan, is that where the incident occurred where you were wounded? Uh, yes, that's when I was uh, injured myself, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so let's talk just like a little bit about, you know, kind of, so you're from Scotland, right? Yeah, that's right, yeah, just outside Glasgow. <clears throat> Okay, and in in Scotland, you know, if someone someone's in Scotland and they want to join the army, you know, there's recruiting station, and and then you you would process and and ship out to wherever it is that you go through like your basic training. Yeah, yeah, that's basically the, <clears throat> that's basically the role how it happens. Yeah, um, go to the recruiting office and then they get the the ball rolling. Then and then it's a series of things before you actually uh, join up. Takes maybe about. Um, up to maybe six months um, from initially going at the recruiting office. Okay, okay. So, you know, all right, so now that, you know, you joined in, 
When was your first deployment uh, to a war zone? Um, I first went to Northern Ireland um, when I was 19. That would have been. Hi, hi. Yeah, I think you you, you broke up for a second. Um, yeah, first first uh, first went in operations. Um, was to Northern Ireland when I was 19 years old. Okay, now I, I've read a couple of books about uh, British military and, and Northern Ireland as well, and I know, uh, I guess compared to how it was, you know, maybe forty years ago, it's calmed down a lot over there, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I was when I was there, it was mostly tours that were um, during kind of ceasefire times, so there wasn't really much going on. But um, certainly, times in the nineteen seventies and eighties, it was it was pretty wild. Yeah, it was pretty wild there. Yeah, so it, that was kind of that was an issue between uh, two different groups, and I know it lasted for a number of years, and and I guess at some point it kind of calmed down a little bit. Um, but so for years, the British military was sending units up there to try and help, kind of keep maintain that peace, right? Yeah, more or less. I mean, the first went in there to um, um, help the Catholics out. As such, they were getting a lot of uh, aggro from. Uh, the Protestants on um, the other side of the river as such. Right, right. Okay, so now you were, um, when you were wounded, let's fast forward a little bit, um, it was at Kajaki Dam, and, and that's in Helmand Province. Mm. Now, you, you the job, that, what was the job that you guys were doing there at the time? Yeah, I was an anti-tanks um, section commander. Okay, and, and you guys were assigned to to secure the the rebuilding of the dam. Not as, not so much rebuilding. Basically, we were um, uh, there to protect the dam because um, uh, from basically getting overrun by Taliban. Because the hill the hilltops we were on were the biggest hilltops in the area, and I'm sure as you can understand, um, once you've got once you've got the the highest ground, you basically got the area. So that was basically to. We were there to overwatch the dam to stop it getting any enemy hands as such. Right, right, and and the um, I know that the British wanted to to kind of get the dam running again to provide power to the entire Helmand province. Was that it? That's right. Yeah, I mean they got they eventually got that um, they got up and running. I think uh, two years later or something. But I think it was I think it was up and running, but. I just think they needed a, I think they needed a new um uh what's it? Well they need new 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 parts to get the to get it fully up and running but it was still going but it just wasn't at its um hundred percent. Okay, and, and that was something that Taliban had put a priority on to try and disrupt from taking place, right? Well, I'm not I'm not too sure what the intelligence on it of it was as to if they were actually gonna be a a direct threat to there, but um, it was basically an important part to keep because uh, the dam itself provided something like 75% of power um, to Helmut Province. So if we were to lose the dam, you know what I mean? That would have been literally all the electricity lost in actually Helmut Province. Right. And, and Helmut Province is a pretty like notoriously bad part of Afghanistan for, for a yeah. number of years. Yeah, more or less. It was kind of, untouched um and the the five years from 2001 to 
hundred and six that um, British and American troops had been there. It was it was hardly touched. It wasn't. It was a kind of safe haven for for the Taliban. They could really get away with anything. Yeah, I know it, it's still kind of a troubled area. I mean, um, earlier this year in, in uh, January, there was a American special forces soldier who was killed in in uh, southern Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, it just goes to show, you know, how, how dangerous of a place it is, even after all these years, you know? Yeah, yes, I know. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a bad place, yeah. So now the, um, so can we talk a little bit about the incident where you were wounded? Yeah, sure, John, yeah. Okay, so it initially started out as a, a some kind of reconnaissance patrol, and then, it, <coughs> uh, is that how it began? Um, no, it was, well, it was a, um, street. Hale, the sniper that was with us, he um he wanted to do a snipe on the Taliban. He'd, he'd seen uh, the night before setting up an illegal checkpoint, legal vehicle checkpoint, um, and it was too far away for him to get the snipe from where we were on the hilltops. Um, so he came up with a plan of heading 700 metres south onto uh, a ridge line near the target area that he was confident he could get a snipe on and... Um, well, wait, he never got that far, really, and it just went, um, it just went pretty bad. Yeah, so so basically, what happened was, and and there's a movie. Uh, if the audience is interested, there's a movie that was made about this uh, specific incident. Um, and what is the name of that, Stu? The movie? It's called Well, in Britain it's called Kajaki, the True Story, but in America it's called uh, it's called Kilo to Bravo. Kilo Two Bravo, and that's a, and people can watch that in the states on Netflix, right? That's correct, yeah. Okay, so basically, so so you guys decided uh, the sniper decided they wanted to make this movement to get closer to this Taliban checkpoint, and in in their movement to make it to their position, uh, they happened to walk into a a, fi- a, a landmine field, basically. Unfortunately, yeah, Stu here, watch. Um, Accidentally trod on a a mine um, en route, well halfway to go to the um, the ridge line he was aiming for, and um, the, well the rescue operation was then mounted once he once he stood in that. Right, and and it, it wasn't a landmine. It wasn't a minefield that was set by the Taliban. That was uh, what is called or known as a legacy minefield. Which is basically mines that the Russians left behind, you know, from that time it must have been like thirty years, twenty five years, something like that. Yeah, that's correct. About twenty years from when the, the Russians were there during the occupation. They basically um the mines are just washed down the hillsides and all congregated in the actual wadi um, where everything happened and um it, it could have been a lot worse than what it was, although it was a, a hideous day and it was a terrible outcome. Uh, it could have been a lot worse because it was a lot of mines down there. Right, and I know that's something that the Russians did in a lot of parts of Afghanistan. Uh, when they, either it was while they were there, like throughout the process, the time that they were there, or, or when they were making their exit, they just laid down an incredible amount of mines. And I know for years after the Russians left, there were organizations that would go in there and attempt to... Um, you know, get rid of as many as these mines as possible because really a, a lot of the, the local population would end up stepping on these mines, like just do, going through their daily daily business. And 
And then further complicating the effort in Afghanistan for, you know, Western forces, American, British, um, you know, there, there were mines everywhere. And what you guys went through was, was really a, an example of, of how bad that can be. Yeah, that's correct. I think there was something like 10 million mines or something laid laid there by the by the Russians and that. So, um, yeah, it was a pretty, pretty hairy place to be. Yeah, I mean that's that's crazy. Ten million mines. That's that's a lot of uh, munitions. Um, yeah. So, so initially, was it the sniper who stepped on the mine? It was. Yeah, he stood in the bed and lost his uh, lost his right leg. Okay, so he stepped on the mine, and then I know that there are procedures for maneuvering through a minefield. And <laughs> in the movie, it was illustrated. Um, on how that's done, it's kind of a very um, slow process, but, but ne- necessary, obviously. Yeah, obviously, yeah, as a, as a slow process, but it's something that's it's got to be slow and got to be um, precise and well as precise as we could get and methodical um, for things to happen. Yeah. So you guys were in the process of getting the, the sniper who initially stepped on the mine out and and then was that when when you ended up stepping on the mine? Yeah, well initially I um asked for a um a helicopter with a winch to extract us out there. Um but this was denied so I, I knew I had to look for an area that was um I felt was flat enough and big enough to get a helicopter um not too much land in but certainly get his back wheels down to to um put the casual onto and unfortunately on doing this I then stood in a mine myself and um, lost my left leg. Okay, and you and you stepped on, on the the mine directly or was it like like kinda next to where you were stepping? How how was that? I stood on it directly so, so yeah. Okay and then so after that um I I think was it then that the initial helicopter came in? It was yes. I mean, I got immediate first aid from um, Alec Craig, a medic, who was um, down there with us, and Colt Mark Wright. He came up to me as well to get my details, um, so that he could pass my details up the chain of command, so that um, so that the personnel, um, well, the, so that the operations centre knew what was going on and who was injured, etc. And a Chinook helicopter was brought in then, and uh, that that detonated a third mine. That was um, right beside me. Right, and, and I know that they eventually, uh, I think it was because of the downdraft from the Chinook that it set off another mine injuring uh, another guy. Yeah, yeah, that that that, that third mine there went off, and it um, injured me, uh, injured me further. And um, Mark Wright, who was standing over me, it, um, it badly injured him, and he was. Um, blasted away by it and he caught some uh, bad injuries from that as well. Now, how long was it, what was the total time that you guys, like that the first uh, sniper stepped on the mine to the time that all of you guys were evacuated out? Around about um, four hours, something like that, four, four and a half hours or something. Okay, and so you guys were so you needed this wench. What exactly is a wench for people who wouldn't know what that yeah, is? Yeah, um, uh, can you describe it? Um, 
I'm trying to think how to describe it. Basically, like a um, uh, like a paramedic will come down a long rope from a helicopter um, to give first aid to an injured person, you know, injured us that were injured in the minefield, and it can do that from like 50, 50 to 60, 70 feet above. Um, rather than having the downdraft from a helicopter, which, as we've seen from the third mine that went off, um, it could set it off. So um, it can do it, and the medic can do it in, in rough safety as such. Right. So basically, um, it's like a, a special piece of equipment, and I, I guess it works better, or, or it can work very well in a situation like that. Yeah, absolutely. Now, yeah, yeah. When when the Chinook came into the wadi, did you guys already know that there was a danger that it could set off a mine? Yes, we knew that because um, I think by the, by the time I stood in a mine, that was then everyone's realisation that this wasn't just one lone mine that Stu stood on. We kind of knew then that ah, this is this is probably a minefield now. So um, so we, we, we didn't want that Chinook to come down, but um, that's what they sent in for us. Right. And initially, so I guess for like a, a helicopter to to be equipped with that equipment, there would have to be kind of like a a special specialized medic on board to to complete that. That's correct. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So okay, so when you guys were were lifted out, um, it it, it was an American PJ unit that came. <clears throat> yeah. Um. Basically, um. When the when the air commanding officer got um, uh, a heads up of what was going on, he initially asked for uh, the American Blackhawks from Kandahar, um, but it was denied. Any, um, uh, it was denied. It basically said there was too much red tape or whatever in the way. Um, but initial, but so we initially didn't get them. But then when the um, the third mine got detonated by the Chinook, uh, we got the we got the Blackhawks released for us, and I think two of them came in and evacuated us out one at a time with them to then rendezvous with the um the Chinook about a mile away from us and they were they then uh, flew us back to Bastion from there. So the um the Chinooks they they won't they're not capable of uh using a winch? The none of them are um, equipped with winches at that stage. Okay, okay. So how many how many soldiers was it in total that were wounded that day at, at that particular incident? There was seven of us wounded, including um, Mark, who um, lost his life. So there was seven of us all, all in. Okay, and that was seven seven uh, guys from three para. That's correct. Yeah, seven of us. Okay, and now that so. You know, when you get wounded, and I, I, I don't know. I know that Americans will eventually get evacuated, like to Germany. Um, I'm not sure if it's the same for the British military. Um, so, do, do you go like to a field hospital and then you get evacuated onto a, a different facility, like out of outside of Afghanistan? Yeah, yeah. We basically we were um, evacuated back to Bastion, the main base. Um, a field hospital was there, and numerous operations on me. And um, then after two days there, we then get um, flown back to England and went to Birmingham to the hospital called Selly Oak Hospital, um, where straight in the operating theatre and um, 
uh, operations carried on from there and I stayed there for around seven weeks. Now, that, that seven weeks, was that the initial care and then recovery process or was that the initial care and and then, like, did you have to go through a process where you had to, like, learn how to move again, that kind of thing? The, the actual seven weeks, that was basically um, the, the initial care because uh, although my, my left leg was gone, um, that that was gone. There was no way back for that. The, the main worry was my right leg because my right leg was... Um, like 90, the, the surgeons were 90% certain I'd lose my right leg. But um, thanks to the surgeons and all the medics involved, they managed to save my right leg. So mine was a bit longer, as in seven weeks rather than just a few weeks that for a few of the guys would have. And then from there, we were then transferred to our rehabilitation centre. We were, we were then um, given prosthetic legs and that to walk to walk with. Okay, and then after after you made your recovery, you continued to serve in the British Army, correct? That's right, yeah, for another six years before I was discharged. Okay, and when you when you, did you stay with the, the three paras, or you you went uh, out to a different yeah, unit? Yeah, that, that stayed with three para. Three para are really good about it, and um, uh, they found me jobs within the battalion, and um, well, so many. In fact, actually, the army were actually really good. Uh, in general, but yeah, three para are really good. Yeah, that, that's awesome. It, it, you know, a, a lot of guys like yourself will go through like some, uh, you know, terrible injuries received on the battlefield. But I think they, uh, on the American side and obviously on the British side, uh, they do a very good job of taking care of guys when they come home. Um, so I know the the Scottish have a very like rich, you know, history and. Uh, and serving in the military and, and that kind of thing. Are there a lot of uh, Scottish natives who serve in, in the infantry units and the powers and stuff like that? Um, I think there is. I mean, I don't know the exact numbers, but um, I think there is um, quite a lot, especially in uh, the parachute regiments made up of a lot of um, Scots and uh, Scots and Geordies, you know, from north of England and stuff. Yeah. So and and Scotland geographically is is north of England, right? That is yes, north of England. Yep. And, and I know like a lot of the um, like the terrain is rough. There's a lot of mountains, and I, I I guess that's pretty good for military training, infantry training, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's yeah, it's good. Uh, it's good mountainous terrain there. So yeah, plenty of plenty of hell uh, hell fitness in there. Right, right, and and so like, is there? So like you're you're in Scotland, right? You you join the army. Is everything take place like south in England, or is, or is a lot of the, some of that take place in Scotland itself? Um, I think they have the um, I think they have the pre-selection before you join the army. I think that's in Scotland, but all the main training that gets done in um, England, certainly for the infantry, it's north of England in uh, in Catrick, which is only about. 100 miles or something from, from Scotland itself. Okay, okay. So I, I noticed, because I, I watched the film uh, Kilo 2 Bravo, and, you know, one thing that... So on the show before, I've had, like, you know, special operations medics. Um, I ha- I've had Chantel Taylor on the show, mm-hmm. who uh, who you know, and she was a... Um, a combat medic with the British Army. Yeah. And, you know, we talk about things about, like, how important, uh, you know, tourniquets are and, and uh, 
and that sort of thing. So in the movie, it, it showed that you guys were using tourniquets, and you know the the tourniquet use has helped the uh, global war on terror have like record high number of survivors from battlefield wounds, and it, it's something that's being ta- talked about at least here in the states where. Uh, you know, guys are coming home after 15 years of war, you know, 20 years of, in the service and applying some of the medical techniques and, and tourniquet use to uh, civilian medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so would you say that the tourniquet use is, is uh, something that like helped you survive your ordeal? Definitely, yeah. Without a shadow of a doubt, yeah. It's, um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic, it's a simple bit of equipment, but it's, it's life-saving Right, right, and I think a majority of wounds on the of uh, fatalities on the battlefield are from uh, people bleeding out and stuff like that. Lost, yeah, as yeah. Right, and and it's just something that you know it, it's something that's common in in at least in the states on the civilian side as well, where a, a lot of people will bleed out before they get to the hospital or something like that, and it's just something that. You know, we're trying to raise awareness to and and kind of have people understand that how important it would be for to have, you know, a nice percentage of the population trained on tourniquet use and and that sort of thing. You know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but I mean, it's it doesn't need to be an actual tourniquet. You can make a tourniquet out of literally anything. You know what I mean? Any right. any bit of material tied tight can act as a tourniquet. Right, or or like a like a belt or something like yeah, that. Belt or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I had I had a um, a, a marine uh, American Marine Special Operations medic on the the podcast um, for a previous episode. Uh, they're known as Sarks. That's a special amphibious reconnaissance corpsman. And basically, what he was saying is you, to to control a bleed. If you can find where it's at, you only need like two pounds of pressure, and 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 that'll pretty much do the trick. Um, but then I've had people on the podcast who who's spoken about incidents where, you know, they, they've seen like a car crash or something like that. And they were able to pull their car over and, and uh, you know, get out a tourniquet and place the tourniquet until the uh, EMTs could arrive and, and kind of and get the person to a hospital. Mm-hmm. But it, it's something so basic that would really change a lot of lives, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's- so, so Stu, what year was it that you retired from the army? Was that uh, that was recently? Yeah, it was two thousand twelve, so four years ago. Okay, and I, I understand that you've you've been active since you've retired. Um, I know you still do skydiving and stuff like that. Um, well, I gave up the gave up the skydiving because I um, broke my my, my only leg um, a couple of years doing that, but I certainly enjoyed myself doing that, uh, and I've. Um, Done numerous things really since I've since I've left. Um, I've done the I've done the London Marathon this year, so that was pretty. Oh wow! That was pretty. That was pretty hardcore. That was that was one of the hardest things I've done, definitely. Oh yeah, and how long is that? That's twenty six miles or twenty six miles. Yeah. Oh wow! Okay, wow, that's awesome, man. Mm-hmm. So is that like you have to do like a lot of training for that? Um... Yeah, I mean I've done a couple of walks with another charity, walking with the wounded earlier on in the year and they were about 20, 22 miles and I thought then, I thought actually if, if I could be shoved, I 
think I could push out another few miles because I was I was knackered after him, but I thought if it came to a record, I could push out a few more. And then so I just put him for the marathon and uh, just kept the top of my fitness and um, and managed to square it away and, d- and done it, which I was really uh, was really chuffed with. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Um, sure. You know, it, it's always good to see guys, you know, come back from those type of wounds and still be able to do things. And uh, I think it's it's very inspirational. Mm. Um, you know, for my audience, there are uh, wounded service members from the states who who listen to the podcast, and um, I think people find that kind of stuff inspiring. Um, sure. So, okay, so you, you've done your. You know, you completed your marathons. You you've done some skydiving. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's awesome, and I want to thank you for coming, taking out the time to come on the podcast. Like we said, I know it's, it's late over there. Um, no worries, that's cool, John. Do you have like any uh, like for the charities? Um, do they have any websites that you know, if if anyone's interested, maybe in the UK, they can check it out? Yeah, they've got, um, the main one I like is um, Blesma. That's the British Limbless X. Service Man's Association. Um, they basically look after um, us guys that have been blown up and lost limbs in um, war zones like Afghanistan, Iraq, and Northern Ireland and such. Um, yeah, they're a, they're a really good charity. And again, there's numerous charities, but um, Blesma's t- certainly my, my top charity that I like. Okay, cool. So... Um so I read. Have you read Battle Worn uh, Chantel's book? I have. Yeah, yeah, it's good, doesn't it? Yeah, it was a good book. Actually, I just finished reading it like mm-hmm. maybe a week and a half ago. Yeah. Um, in the book, she mentioned how she like towards the end. Of, I believe it was towards the end of one of her tours where she had visited you in the hospital. Yeah, um, her and her, her and her boyfriend at the time they they were just coming off their R and R, and they heard about an incident that was ongoing at Kajaki but they didn't know anything else about it and then when Chantel came out of the hospital she um she seemed to be lying there and she was a bit she was a bit upset so um but yeah um, and I can't really remember a lot of that about that time anyway but I remember her popping her head in right and I know one of the things she spoke about in the book was like how all the other guys were kind of um you know they they were sleeping. I, I believe it was like a medically induced sleep, mm. and and you and you were kind of lying there awake, and she was just talking about how how difficult that must have been for you. I can't. I mean, I can't really remember these these things. I mean, there's because you're that much because you're that high in drugs after you've just been after I was injured, so right. it's kind of um, a bit sketchy. But I remember a few things, but um, certainly remember Chantel been there, but can't remember a comment about that. Right, right. Okay, cool, man. So, you know, I just want to thank you for taking out the time again to come on the podcast. Um, you know, I, I think my audience, they appreciate being able to hear from, you know, some of our allied nations, uh, warriors. And, um, you know, I just want to thank you for your service as well. Thank you. Cheers, John. When's this, when's this on your podcasting? Um, we, we may release this. I may do it, uh, put it up tomorrow. All right, cool. Awesome. So, um, you know, once it goes up, I'll just uh, shoot you a text. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Cheers, go on. All right, cool, man. Thank you. Cheers, man. Cheers, man. Bye, bye. That was a damn good interview with uh, Stu and, uh, you know, him talking about the stories with his buddies from 3 Pair over in Afghanistan. I'm glad that most all of them got out, and I'm glad that he's kicking ass now. 
So thanks Nick for helping me uh, co-host for this episode. If you want to check out Nick, you can check his website at www.cryptostrategic.com. That's K-R-U-P-T-O strategic.com. It's Crypto Strategic on Instagram and Facebook. Nick posts pretty regularly. If you want to kind of keep up with what he's up to, uh, just check him out there. Uh, my website is globalrecon.net. My Facebook is FB Recon. Um, my main Instagram account is IG Recon. I have a secondary account. It's called Black Ops Matter. Um, and just recently, uh, me and uh, Chantel Taylor, who was on the podcast previously, she's a, a veteran of the British Army. She was a combat medic with uh, rotations to Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, uh, we are collaborating on an account on Instagram. It's called Mission Underscore Critical. And with that account, it'll focus a little more on some of the, the medic medical aspects of, uh, you know, military medicine and things like that. Uh, so check that out. Um, you can also check out Santel on Facebook at, uh, battle worn. And, uh, like always, I encourage you guys to subscribe on iTunes, download, uh, share with your friends. Uh, if you don't have the Apple operating system, you can find the podcast on SoundCloud, uh, just search Global Recon Podcast, and um, we'll see you guys in a, a couple of days with another episode. Peace.